My name is Lydia. This is Carla. And today we are joined by Sheila LaRock. Hi, everyone. We are super thrilled to have a chance to chat with you, Sheila, partially about Métis librarianship, but also about libraries and technologies more broadly, because this is kind of what this podcast is all about, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, what's this podcast called, Lydia? No librarians allowed. Excellent. Thank you. We forget half the time. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Do you want to tell us which libraries you worked in in the past? Of sure. Where What's your library journey? That's right. Yes. <laughs> My library journey. Um, as an employee, I started working at the Saskatoon Public Library in 2013. Fun fact, um, I dropped out of fashion school in Vancouver. Ooh. So yeah, that's my go-to fun fact about me. So I thought before I like move across the country again, I should probably work in a library to see if I actually like it. And so I did that and I, I liked it. I applied to U of T um, high school and got in. I worked at U of T Robarts Reference and Research Services when I was there um, as a student. And then... Didn't you also work at the CBC? Yeah, that was after. Yeah, yeah cool. So I worked at CBC for six months. Cool. Cool. Um, That's like the big media fame that you can get in Canada. I know. <laughs> and now I can like describe Peter Mansbridge as my former colleague, um, even though I was never in the same room <laughs> with him. Yeah. And then I moved to Edmonton because I got a job at the U of A libraries and now I'm in the public library. Cool. Yeah, yeah. So it feels good to be back in the public library world, but I've touched on public academic and special libraries so yeah it's been a that's great it's been a journey that's for sure kind of literally across the country i'm curious about people's inklings when they're interested in trying something for work yeah um, do you recall this inkling <laughs> well I, i've been a public library like a heavy public library user for a long time i remember like growing up in small town saskatchewan and our public library was the bookmobile and I just thought it was so cool that a few times a week this bus would come bring us books. So I actually like have had like so many kind of random jobs. I was driving kids to school for a long time for the French school and had a van that had a DVD player on purpose because how do you keep five children sane throughout a year that are all sitting like within hitting distance from each other. Um, That's a good measure. So yeah, exactly. Hitting so distance. I got free DVDs every week from the library. Every week I go there and I'm like, you know, like this seems pretty, pretty all right. I failed the LSAT. Um, <laughs> so law school was not an option and not just like, oh, it didn't do so well. Like, <laughs> failed it. My background is in political studies and women's and gender studies. Halfway through that, then 2008 happened, and not only did we not, none of us had any money anymore, but we had conservatives provincially and federally, and so they cut everything that I was going to work for. So I was like, well, I don't really know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to finish school. So I kind of fell into librarianship having a lot of other things not work out and we yeah. call that prototyping you've tested oh, yeah. a variety of that's a cool yes. also highlights the very classic librarian trait of just being interested in everything and wanting to do everything Absolutely. Yeah. oh that's a great way to put it yeah 
So Sheila, the reason why we wanted to chat with you in person is that recently you delivered a opening keynote address at the Access uh, Conference. Um, have you heard of the Access Conference before? Um, yes, I had heard of it before because last year it was held in Saskatoon. So a lot of people thought I would go, but I hadn't heard of it at that point. But then the next year I was asked to do the keynote at it. So you hadn't attended before? Nope. I was super excited when you were invited to be the opening address at the Access um, Conference. But I was also very pleased that in the recent years, the keynotes have been given to people from underrepresented groups, women. Do you want to talk about that experience? Like, were you nervous? Was it uh, oh. <laughs> stressful? <laughs> No, not nervous at all. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, I had done a, a lot of conference presentations, but not anything like that. And I had organized conferences before. I'll just be honest. I didn't know like how much people would care about reconciliation in the TRC. Like that's what I was approached to talk about. I was like, well, like, what do people know? What do people care about? Because I had done, I will never forget, like one webinar and it was all about like TRC initiatives, blah, blah, blah. And like, okay, let's open it up for questions. And after 45 minutes of speaking, someone asked, what does the TRC stand for? I guess I need to dial it back. Like, I guess there's a base assumption. And I think we do that in tech too. There's a base assumption of like, the literacy that people have and like I kind of live in an indigenous bubble a bit so there's a basic assumption on my part of what people know like to add to that not only is it it's also like frustrating like when you're actively learning for your for yourself speaking solely from my perspective I'm learning a lot uh these days trying to do more tech things in my current role and I am screwing it up and I am making mistakes <laughs> and I am so like, I get so frustrated and I do a lot of Googling and I don't know what I'm doing. I'm trying and also maybe making mistakes myself to have more patience with people. Like, okay, you don't know. You are trying and trying to be open-minded. Yeah. People like carrying people's like trying and it's a lot of like emotional labor and mm -hmm. there's a, already a lot of that in libraries so yeah it's just a just a whole nother level when it's also um spiritual and cultural emotional labor if that makes sense wow i don't think we've actually heard the term like spiritual labor but you're right uh, yeah and again any one of us is only human, right? Yes. Like at the end of the day, you still want to go home and chill out and do your thing. I and sure do. <laughs> <laughs> and who doesn't, right? Yeah, so yeah. can we talk about the Métis Sash? Sure. Okay. Yeah, totally. So recently I had the pleasure to attend with my colleagues 
I guess a road trip, a field trip to the Mitchell Cultural Center in St. Albert. And here I'm holding, maybe I'll take a picture. It I'm looks very great, Aww. actually. It is. <laughs> a very, very basic uh, Métis sash. Selena Lawyer taught us uh, the foundations. And I got super excited about this because I'll be honest, like at first I was, I was intimidated. The idea of like doing something by hand for the first time in front of all my colleagues was terrifying. Um, but once I got going, what I loved about it is like, it's a logical system. There's a method to this. And if you stick to it, it works. Um, but also you walk away with the thing. And then we had a chance to like talk and learn from each other and like, look how other people are doing. So it was just like a very different way of learning that I guess we are exposed to in our traditional school system. You have a, a sash story too. Would you like to share? Sure. Yeah. My sash story comes from convocation at U of T. So my friend, Lindsay Dupree, when she convocated, she asked if she would be able to wear her Métis sash um, at convocation across the stage. And she was told no, because it violated academic traditions. I'm, when she told us that story, I made a mental note, like, okay, don't ask, just, just do it. <laughs> um, so I, I had a, I had a little black dress on and like a Métis sash because it was my birthday also that week. And like my brother gave me a sash and my family, like we all came down cause kind of a thing like my birthday and then oh yeah also like I finished grad school <laughs> yeah so he gave me the sash and so I wore it but I knew like her experience so I had it on and then when it came to like put on the robes like I kept the sash on like underneath the robe and as we're all lining up and whatever doing the thing it was perfect, actually, because I had like uh, granola bars and snacks and like my iPhone like <laughs> tucked into my sash and like it was great. It was able to like sustain me through this boring afternoon. Um, so, yeah, and I remember like I pulled it at one point, like I pulled out like granola bar number. Oh, who knows? Um, oh, a lot. And uh, <laughs> someone was like, wow, like that's amazing. Like that's actually she's so smart I was like being me like yeah like my ancestors were really smart um but we don't think of like uh the sash as like a technology right we think of it as like an ephemeral cultural product but it really is technology it could be used for anything like if you notably like as a belt and like utility belt if you were carrying like large things it also could become like medical equipment like if you injured yourself it would become something um, if you were traveling through the land and you could pull out threads, tie them onto trees and like markers so you would know where you had been before and like then you could find your path on the way back. You could like heat it up um, by the fire and then like wrap it on your back. Oh, we didn't hear about that. Oh, yeah. We, like, we heard about mm. sewing, like fix it, mending, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. It's like a it's. It's amazing. Now it's more like a cultural thing. It does have more meaning. Like we don't like I don't wear a sash day to day. Um, spoiler alert. <laughs> 
So you did end up wearing it across I the stage. I did end up wearing Yeah. So I, I left it on underneath um, until like the last minute. And yeah, I wore it across the stage. And it was so funny. Like they started off like the convocation ceremonies with a land acknowledgement. And so I was like, okay, well, we're going to acknowledge the land. Like, how could I get in trouble for this? You know, here I am with it over top. And yeah, like the president of the university was like, oh, nice belt. Yeah, it is a nice, a nice belt. <laughs> In one article, we talked about another episode how it you, you could call that exaggerated compliance, right? Yeah. Essentially, truly practicing what we're preaching. Yeah, exactly. I was like, well, this how could this vi- violate academic tradition if this university is on stolen land? You know, like it's kind of like, well... The presence of this building is violating someone's tradition. Yes, but it is not in the spreadsheet for what they were going to accomplish in Q4. All it was in Q4 was the land acknowledgement before the ceremony. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. You were outside of that box. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's just so amazing to me, like, how our simple, like, presence can be so disruptive still. Like well, and frankly, threatening, right? Like, yeah, totally. Don't remind us of the past, and don't practice mm-hmm. the traditions. So, some traditions are more valued than others, obviously, right? Yeah, for sure. Let's talk a little bit about that. I guess that idea of burnout and the tension in the profession, if you don't mind, like how to sort of sustain commitment to that work. But there is a cost to doing that year in and year out, and and sort of being that service provider. Already, I think we've touched on the idea that like all of us do need a job. We got to pay the bills and we got to eat. So on one hand, we want to be in a profession that, you know, we help others and we learn, but it's still a job, right? Do you want to comment on sort of that idea of just like the tensions and I guess the contradictions that you've maybe been thinking about recently? Sure. Yeah. When I was first uh, working in libraries, I had been a youth support that's another thing I did I was a youth support worker so you want to talk about emotional Mm -hmm. investment yeah holy like and so when I when I came to libraries I was so happy I was like man like when we're closed we're closed like nine o'clock that's it like you don't even know (laughs) yeah like amazing like i don't have to email anyone's social worker i don't have to pick up anyone from court like this is great um but i think there, like now years in there is there's a lot of burnout that comes with I guess, like, answering, like, the same questions over and over again and just, like, always, like, trying to do so in a in a similar way and just trying to deal with public. There's an idea of serving, right? And, like, it's kind of, like, similar um, when I was a youth support worker. It's, like, the idea of, like, supporting, right? That was my job. It's, like, I support youth and making good decisions, whatever that ends up looking like for that individual. Really similar, like, that these, like, feminized professions of, like, social work-esque and librarianship 
and the Venn diagram in the middle, like where a lot of burnout happens. And I don't know if that's unique because it is a feminized profession, because we also like hear a lot about burnout in tech and that's like a very masculinized profession. So I'm not sure, but I think the, the nature of the burnout is very specific when it comes to librarianship burnout. Mm -hmm. But another thing that's been on my mind about burnout, and I think I've read this somewhere, is just kind of like trying to balance the contradictions between sort of your values and what you think are, are also shared values and just the practices that you see on the ground, right? So, yeah, feeling like you can't say no. Is there anything you want to add on that? Yes. Um, <laughs> Do you tell us. Um, just listening to you speak, when I think about um, like service to the profession, it's a thing for tenure track librarians and just remembering the job I was hired for was very different than the job I ended up doing. I ended up doing inventory, which Ooh. was fine. Like they didn't cut my pay or anything. I was still just doing it. Like counting the number of tapes in a basement was like not really what I thought I would end up doing. And I tried to like bring this to like attention of, of like, you know, I would rather be doing something else. Like I could do some cataloging or, you know, anything. And they were like, well, they, they being the higher ups really like the way you're doing inventory. And so you're doing a really good job. So if you want your contract renewed, maybe then, well, it would be best if you just kept doing this. And obviously like none of our contracts got renewed. Like it had gotten to the point where I was like, I can't do this. You know, this is so boring. You're right. To some degree, the expectation to do service does rely on being in a position of flexibility and to some degree privilege, right? Mm -hmm. And I often think about how in, in academia, there's no distinction between job and life. Academics don't have hobbies. They just, this is their life. Mm -hmm. But they're still workers mm -hmm. and they're still human beings. And like, we know that women are punished more for having families in academia. Yeah. And similarly, uh, you know, I was going to say, you know, a woman in a temporary contract, they tell you, well, just speak up for yourself and you do, and you get punished for it. Right. So mm -hmm. either way they cut your contract. So it's yeah. like they dangle it in front of you. And we've all been in positions of like temporary labor mm -hmm. where that promise of, Oh, You'll continue to be paid and support yourself, but there's still no guarantee. So it's like all the advice that you hear is actually not helpful because I don't know, maybe if a man speaks up, he may or may not be listened to, but imagine yeah, being a woman and being in a marginalized group, like everything's stacked against you. So yeah, I moved away from Toronto, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you talked in your keynote about how a process of truth and reconciliation is personal. Yeah. And so like, it's not necessarily something that's institutional, which we can talk about a little bit more because that's a pretty like weighty topic. <laughs> but like, I'm kind of thinking about this idea that like, are our jobs personal? How much of me is in there and how much is required to be in there? And what is the emotional investment that I'm needing to make in a, a certain library and how much of myself am I needing to give outside of external hours and give to what? Working on a reference desk like at U of T when students would be like, well, what's a good thing? 
like or like what would you do and I'm like well I wouldn't major in this <laughs> like first of all I, I wouldn't take this class um so like hmm, I, I would reevaluate reevaluate um, your life and then come back and see <laughs> this seems hard um but like like you don't I know you don't say that like what are you doing here you know you just try to try to be more objective and like just in a public library setting, like people will be like, well, what's a good book? So they wanted you to be that authoritative yeah, right, voice yeah. and trust you as like the ultimate gatekeeper of, of that knowledge. Yeah. And, and so when you even challenge that idea, they're not really comfortable with it, are they? Yeah, exactly. I'm a values-based person. That's like how I operate. And so that's always my number one. So usually that works out because librarianship has many of the same values that I do, but I mean, we've talked in episodes past about how may, that may not be the case all the time, and that's difficult. And I've been thinking a lot how like organizing is labor, mm -hmm. and it's in the background. So when you talked about like baking cookies for the kids and supporting youth, is not really valued in our society, right? And nobody really wants to say it because like we need people to do all of the things that we do, but we remain in the background, right? And so I, I'm often frustrated recently how, like we grease the wheels, we make things happen, but we are invisible. Mm -hmm. And no wonder it takes a toll and we're frustrated. So just like that idea of time and, and the finality of, of our lives, and it's not an abstract concept, it's real. So I know that we talked about that with Tanya as well in terms of like committing to things. So. We, we don't acknowledge that in libraries often, right? We want to do more with less. Mm -hmm, yeah, for sure. And beyond libraries, I think other institutions are, like particularly with reconciliation and indigenizing and whatever, we're trying to do that, but like in a model. Okay, so what, what happened in Q4 in, for reconciliation? And it seems ridiculous when I say that out loud, but that's actually what people are doing like, and how people are operating at an institutional, not just libraries, like level. It, that's just so not how we, can, we will be able to measure that effectively, I think. Like we can think about this in like years and years and years, like generations to come, you know. It's just hard to measure that um, in a sustained thing because I don't think capitalism and business models are sustainable. So, yeah. Good point. There's again that inconsistency, right? In terms yeah. of like the larger goal of reconciliation, but only according to very strict ways to do that. So like quarters, time, achievement, spreadsheet, yeah. Gantt chart. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Achievable goals, which I don't think reconciliation is like, how do we know when we're all living in harmony? Like, I don't know. I don't see evidence of that yet. So mm -hmm. I can think that we are not there yet, but it's hard to fathom what that might be. So what does the term digital native mean to you? Oh. You touched on it in the presentation. <laughs> Can you talk about the assumptions that you've experienced from other people in the library about maybe being a digital native, yeah. as problematic as that is? 
Oh man, the first time I heard this term, um, I was in class and I was just floored and like I couldn't imagine what digital native, like what does that mean? It, what it is supposed to mean, I think, is people who grew up with technology. So having had that be a presence in their life. But as I touched on before, like digital native, you're not talking about folks like me necessarily. I mean, yeah, you could be easily. Like I have an iPhone and like, like not the latest iPhone, like <laughs> let's get real. But I mean, the point that I brought up, my war pony is a Prius for real. Like I did drive my Prius here today, but we just see like indigenous folks as being so removed from technology and not having been creators and users of that, but also to have digital native meaning someone from a more affluent background or like someone who is just used to things and knows like how to use the technology and has been able to use that for a long time. You can know how to use technology and just picked it up not that long ago, case maybe in point. <laughs> um, like it just floors me still to this day that people use that term. I try not to put up my hand and say like, oh, digital natives, you mean like me and my cousins? But also like, you mean like me and my cousins? I'm not sure who that term refers to anymore. I'll never forget working at a reference desk in Saskatoon. This woman, she was having trouble with her iPad and like brought it up to the desk. And I was like, okay, sure, we can co-learn this together. Like, I currently don't have an iPad. I've never had one. And I had never actually even used one up until that point. And she just, like, couldn't believe that I had never used one. Well, no, we're figuring this out together. And she, was, like, kept saying to me, but you're young. But you're young. <laughs> but you're young. Like, and it flustered me. I was like, yeah, like. I don't have like an iPad. I have a very cheap laptop. Like I can't like afford an iPad. Um, the term digital native also is inherently problematic on race, but also problematic on like class. And that's something that I really think about a lot these days. All the people who grew up with technology had access to it probably in their families, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, you mentioned that a lot in your talk, and that's certainly what I took away. And certainly talking about a Prius, right? And like yeah. the fact that, you know, we can afford cars because we belong to a certain class. But in, I don't know, in libraries, we're not comfortable talking about that. We, no. we know that we have low income members of the community, right? And I agree. I, I don't think we're comfortable with class, right? And that unfortunately in Canada, it does mean some members of the society have uh, more access to that tech. Many are left out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Class and race can be inherently like linked, but not necessarily. And we can kind of get to the idea of talking about race a little bit. And we can talk about class in terms of like extreme -er ends. Like we can talk about like homelessness. But we can't talk about class and the people who are more working class, who only experience technology when they go to school, sharing things more. That just comes more inherently a thing that you do when you're poor. 
libraries pride themselves on is like we lend things we borrow and like it's like well yeah like that's kind of just how things it's a necessity are. right yeah exactly yeah so i don't know it's using the public libraries like a life hack <laughs> you know for and like and like and i've seen that on like life hacks like use your library like but like for what some, a revelation yeah i know <laughs> which is great like it's good like marketing for public libraries like sure yeah life hacks whatever for some people like those life hacks are necessities and carla and i have talked about that for public computing right how why that's such a a physically tense area in many libraries because people depend their lives on it, right? Like access to a computer and creating that resume, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. pursuing a job to pay those bills that we talked about at the beginning, yeah. Since it's like a library and tech podcast, what have you guys learned in episodes you've done? Like what are some takeaways that you have uh, in this quarter? Each person whom we've talked to is their own self and how they even understand the questions and they may not want to answer them, but like everyone has their own way of talking about the same topic. And it's amazing, right? Because more or less we're, we're interested in like these larger ideas of what this like learning and, and where does technology fit in, but everyone's unique and that's the rewarding part. It's never exactly the same. And we, I think, uh, also learn about our workflow, if you will, or our approach is, I wouldn't say it's overly rigid and we build trust, I think, uh, amongst ourselves and hopefully among listeners and the people who come. And, and also we have obviously episodes where it's just me and Carla ranting about stuff and that's also part of the process. So I guess, yeah, I think connecting maybe like the, the ideas and the theory with the how, I think that's probably why we wanted to do this and to have an opportunity and like to have this tech that's, you know, fairly low cost, right? Again, like to be lucky, you know, you mentioned kind of having access to iPads and like all those assumptions that wasn't necessarily the case a while ago, but now we have it. So what can we do with it? And how do we, I think it's fair to say, how do we use it in a way that's connected to our values? Uh, so hopefully not speak for the guest or like overpower them with too many questions and just let them be who they are. Yeah. I hope that was true here. <laughs> yeah, no, I think you guys are doing a good job. Yeah. I feel like, oh yeah, I got to think about things and like, I hope, I hope listeners will be able to think about things. So thanks for, thanks for asking me to come on. Thank you for being here. You can find us on iTunes and Google something that I never remember. We're going to write this down at some point. Listen to us on places you can find podcasts. If you have uh, questions or want to get in touch, you can email us at nolibrariansallowed at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter and uh, hope you will tune in again. Okay, thank you. Bye. Bye.